If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Our focus will be verses 14 through 22. Um, before we get into this, I do want to make a brief comment on uh, Mark's success in reading through all that list of names last week at the beginning of Ezra. That's um, having gone through lists like that in the past, it's always a daunting thing. Um, and, you know, kudos for, uh, for getting through that. Uh, the reason, another reason I mentioned that, you know, down in South Georgia, people tend to have a little more of a Southern drawl, preachers do. And so kind of one of, one of like just the, the running jokes is if you don't know how to pronounce something, just say it really loud and with conviction, you know, like you really mean it and you really believe it. Um, you know, that way, if you're not saying it right, man, you know, he was sure fired up for Jesus. So we'll, we'll overlook that. Um, but names can be tough sometimes. And, uh, Mark did a good job with that, but I, I picture in my head, you know, just saying it loud because you can, um, I don't know that that's just fun for me. Uh, Matthew chapter eight, verses 14 through 22. This will be the last time we're in the gospel of Matthew for, for several months as Mark really gets into uh, the book of Ezra. Um, and we just stay there for a little while. Um, and so as we read here in just a second, I'm actually going to start reading in verse one, just to kind of reset the context. Um, and I'm going to read a little past, um, past our passage, uh, which ends with verse 22, because uh, I, I want to make sure we know where we've come from, kind of see where we're going, and we can kind of locate where we are uh, here in the few verses we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus is just, by the way, real quick, Jesus just finished the Sermon on the Mount. You know that. So we've been up there on this mountain hearing all this amazing teaching from the Son of God. He's coming down the mountain. And what do we get when he comes down from the mountain uh, into the world again in his ministry? So when he came down, verse 1, from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God, or the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples were asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, O you of little faith. And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray one more time. Father, what a great privilege we have to study your word. God, it is your word. It is the word of the living God. Lord, as it says, the grass withers, the flower fades. Surely the people are grass, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God, we are so thankful that you've given us the book of Matthew, where we can read about our Savior, what he did and what he said, and we can learn from this. God, what a treasure, what a gift. I pray that you will make our hearts and our souls to long for this word. Lord, and I pray that you will feed us in these few moments together as we unpack all that is here. Lord, give us insight. Give us wisdom. Lord, help us gain what is true. Guard us from what is false. And Lord, help us be better able to walk with Christ because of our time together in these few moments. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've got two main points from this passage, Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 22. I'll mention them now and then I'll reference them again as we go through each one. First major point is this, is simply that Jesus displays his divine power. And the second one is that Jesus demands our full commitment. And the two are not unrelated. Jesus displays his divine power and Jesus demands our full commitment. And again, the two are not unrelated. First, let's consider how Jesus displays his divine power. Look again at verses 14 through 17. So Jesus has just come from um, healing the the servant of the centurion um, and healing the guy with leprosy. And so he's got another opportunity to heal. And look at verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his, Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And so we see Jesus displaying his divine power in a number of ways here. First, in healing Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, pretty straightforward point. Um, But he's showing that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man that was foretold who would have this divine power. And he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Look again at verse 14. They come into Peter's house. Um, His mother-in-law is there and she's lying sick with a fever. You know, we take fevers for granted today. I mean, all we have to do is just give some Motrin or Tylenol, maybe a combination of both and, you know, just ride it out and then we're better and we're on to life. But, you know, people haven't always had some of the access to some of the the blessings that we have medicinally today. Um, And so a fever could mean... It could cost you your life. 
Um, you know, it's just something that was a, a way of, of life for people. You get a, a fever like this, you might not get better. That, that's the oddity for us today if someone gets a fever that takes their life. Uh, it wasn't so odd back then. And so this actually is a big deal that she's sick. It's, it's so severe that she can't even get up. She's having to stay laid down. Um, and this fever uh, has, has stricken her. And so Jesus comes in and with a simple touch on the hand, the fever leaves her. I mean, you and I can't do that. Like I said, we, we've got to give medicine, make sure to get ice water and all this stuff to get fever away. All Jesus has to do is touch her hand and the fever is gone. It's an amazing miracle. Jesus also heals everyone who's brought to him. We're going to come back to, to Peter's mother-in-law in a second. But he heals everyone who who is brought to him. I mean, look down in verse 16. It says, um, and with a word, he or he cast out the spirits with a word, and then he healed all who were sick. They were people were they hear about what he does and they just keep bringing, hey, this person's sick, this person's sick. You know, so and so they just keep bringing all these sick people to Jesus. And what does he do? He heals them. Every single one, he heals them. Not only does he heal, he casts out demons. I mean, look again, what it says in verse 16, many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word. Doesn't say what the word is, could be similar to the phrases he used in other places, you know, come out, um, be gone, whatever. We don't know for sure, but it just is evidence of his power as the son of God that all he has to do is speak and these powerful spiritual beings obey him immediately. There's no disputing. There's no arguing. There's no, well, hey, I'll get back to you later if I'm actually going to do that. They leave immediately when Jesus shows up. And as, as we'll see, you know, way down the road um, and, and later in Matthew 8, you know, after several months, when he, he meets the, the men in the country of the Gadarenes, you know, they, Jesus says, How, what's your name? They say we're legions. You're talking about thousands of demons um, in these two individuals. And what do they do? Instead of rising up in anger and you know, a show of power, they fall down in fear. Such is the power of our Savior. Demons recognize that immediately. They always are afraid. Um, they are always afraid of the Son of God. They know He can do with them what He wills. And so we see him displaying his divine power and healing Peter's mother-in-law and healing all the people who were brought to him at this point, casting out many demons. But we also see this as a fulfillment of what was actually written about Jesus way back in the, the prophet Isaiah. He literally quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, which Mark read at the beginning of the service when he says, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And it's, it's an important point that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to more in depth in a moment. But Isaiah 53, as we know, was about Jesus and the healing that he would bring. It is not a prophecy about you and me. It is a prophecy about Jesus. And that's going to be a very important point that I'm going to come back to. So let's, let's think about a few things here as we see that God can heal. 
Healing is first necessary because we live in a, a, a broken world, a world that has been subject to sin and death and chaos and corruption. And that has touched all of us in one way or another. We talked a lot about that uh, in Sunday school this morning. Um, but we all have testimonies to, way, to the ways the brokenness of this world has touched us, hurt us, wounded us um, in so many ways. We, we live in a busted world world. And sickness in particular is a part of living in a busted world. It's one of those things, uh, you know, I work with high school students and, you know, we get questions about heaven. And one of the, the things I really like, I, I don't get tired of saying this, there's not going to be sickness in heaven. Healing is something we have to, to, in sickness and healing and all that, that's something of this world right now. When we get to heaven, we get to a new creation one day, there's not going to be sickness. Our bodies aren't going to be frail. Our bodies aren't going to, to be subject to, to sickness or disease or any of that stuff. It's going to be gone. And so we look forward to that day, but it's not here yet. And so the issue of sickness and will I get better, will I not get better, that's just the life we live in. And so I want us to see something here because, you know, we're a more reform-minded church and, you know, we rightly, I think, reject the excesses of the charismatic movement, but we need to hear, hear this, that God can heal. God can heal. I mean, every time one of my kids gets sick with something, I pray the Lord would heal them. Do we give them medicine? Absolutely we do. But the medicine's only going to work if God permits it to. Anytime anybody in my family gets sick, I pray for the Lord to make them better. Um, and if I hear about any of you guys, if you're suffering with something, I pray the Lord will restore your health. Why? Because we know God can heal. We wouldn't be praying if God couldn't heal. But there's a second point. We know God does still heal sometimes. He doesn't always heal. Um, that's a, another fact of living in this world. Um, we all know situations where we have prayed for God to bring healing to someone that we love, and God has not brought healing. Um, and I'm not going to repeat everything we talked about in Sunday school, but in those moments, we have to trust that God is good, and He's in control, and He has a purpose, probably 10 million purposes, and we only see three or four of them at the moment. But... We know God can. We know He still does sometimes. And so we pray, God, this is drawing from 1 John, if it is your will, according to your will, Lord, please grant healing. So it's not wrong to pray for healing. Um, it's not wrong to do that. It's a good thing. But we have to pray understanding God might have a different purpose than healing. And oftentimes it is the case when God does not grant our request exactly as we ask it, He's got something even better in store. And that's not something in the moment you'll be like, this doesn't feel like better. I didn't get what I was hoping for. Ultimately, we'll see it was for our good and his glory, and it was the best possible outcome. Now, we think about miracles or we think about healing, and it brings up this whole issue of, of miracles. Um, and I had a seminary professor say this. I don't know if this was original to him, but he, we, in the New Testament class, we talked about miracles. We talked about parables because we spent a lot of time looking at the gospels. Um, and one of the things he said, it stuck with me and I've tested this over the years and I, I found it to be generally true. Uh, two statements here. Um, he talked about parables that a parable is a miracle in words and a miracle is a parable 
in deeds or in works. A parable is a miracle in words. A miracle is a parable in deeds. And the point of that is simply to say we see miracles like what we see here. Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, healing all those who were brought to him who were sick, casting out demons. What we see going on here is God is teaching us about spiritual realities. There are things we need to see in miracles that go deeper than just the physical reality that we're looking at. And the point here is this. Those who have been restored by Jesus will, like Peter's mother-in-law, willingly and eagerly serve him. I mean, you think about it. She was incapacitated with her sickness. Jesus heals her, and immediately what does she do? She rose and began to serve him. It says him, not them, him. And that's instructive for us. Whenever Jesus restores us spiritually, I mean, this is the Christian life. This is salvation here. We are dead. We are, we are on our deathbed. Jesus gives new life. We're brought back to life. What is our first inclination? To want to honor and serve him. We might not understand what all that looks like, but that's, that's our desire. We want to please him. We want to, we want to get to know him. We want to honor him. We want to tell others about him. We want to serve him. That's, that's, that's one of the first reflexes that we get as new, new believers. I want to serve this Jesus who has made me new. I want to serve this Jesus who has given me life. So when Jesus restores us to life, one of the, the first things that comes out is this desire to serve him, just like Peter's mother-in-law did. There's another thing about miracles here that I want to talk about. And it's simply this. It's evidence that the kingdom of God is breaking in to the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdom of this world. What this means is this. The kingdom is already here, but not yet in its fullness and consummation. Some other thoughts. That means the resurrection is already here, but not yet in its fullness and consummation. Think about it. What does Romans say? We've been raised to walk in newness of life. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been raised... With him, we're, start, we're experiencing now the first fruits, the initial phase, if you will, of this resurrection that was promised. We are raised to new life in Christ. The new creation is already here. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All old things have gone, new things have come, and yet we're not all the way there yet. We're nowhere close to like new bodies and everything like that, but it's already here. The age to come is already here, but not yet in its fullness and consummation. And I bring this up in light of our text because we live in this day-by-day tension. We know that, that, that Jesus is making things new, and we experience that, we taste that, but we know there's so much more still coming. And, and we live in this tension because we want all of that new age, we want all of Jesus that we can get, but we still live in a broken world. Our feet are still planted in, in a world that is cursed by sin, a, a world that is broken, a world that is chaotic, a world that is messed up. And so we live in this tension, this overlap, if you will, of all the new that has started to come, and yet it's not all the way here, and we still wait for the fullness to come, and we, we still struggle, we still grieve, we still make mistakes, we still sin, and we're like, God, I hate that part of me. I can't wait to get new. 
This tension is real. And I think it's, it's what Paul's getting at in Romans chapter 8. So if you'll hold your place in Matthew and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses 18 through 30. Jerry, you can quote this if you want to. I'll just give you the microphone. Um, I think you could probably get all of this. But look at verse 18. Again, it's this, this tension of knowing, of having begun to experience all the good things that God had promised in Christ, and yet we know we're, we're still broken in many ways. We still experience suffering, and yet we're longing for more. Look at, think, think in, in terms of this tension of what Paul's saying here. He says, For I consider, this is verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Thought we were already adopted and redeemed. We are, but we're waiting for the fullness and consummation of that. That's what Paul's saying. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, we also predestined to be what? conformed to the image of his son. What we want so much in the middle of this tension of wanting more of Jesus, to be more like Jesus, but knowing we still have this principle of sin at work in us, waging war against us, and we hate it, but it's there. We have been marked out beforehand to be conformed to the image of his son. What he started, he will finish. It's what Paul is saying. In order that what? Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he already glorified. The tension that we live in will come to an end one day. Because we see in Jesus, like sickness going away, demons being cast out. And that's a picture of what's to come. It's a picture of what's to come. It's not completely our experience now. No, no more sickness, no more any of that. We still live in a broken world. And this leads me to a, a point I need to make here. It's a warning against a very horrible misuse, a very horrible misinterpretation and misapplication of our text here in Matthew chapter 8. Um, some people look at what Jesus is doing and they will say that that is exactly what you and I need to be doing. Um, I have it in here. I want to quote from a guy named Bill Johnson, not because I'm endorsing him. Um, in fact, I have the strongest um, disagreement with him as I would have with a number of people. Uh, he is a false teacher, and what he produces is not good for the church, but it's a very common way of thinking that's out there. Uh, he's the pastor of Bethel Church out in Redding, California. 
Uh, he's the, one of the leading proponents of the old-fashioned health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is in reality an old-fashioned heresy and false teaching. But I want to read you a little bit of um, what he says about healing. Because we know Jesus was able to heal. And we know in the early church, you know, the apostles, because they're, you know, God's foundation for the church, you know, they had these gifts, but when they died out and their generation died, those gifts ceased. Um, But listen to what Bill Johnson says. He believes we are to do exactly as Jesus did, to heal just like Jesus did, as often as Jesus did. He says the mandate on every believer is to do as Jesus did. We've been given a commission to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons. He started something that we are to complete. Having having received His Holy Spirit, we now have the great privilege of walking in the same anointing that Jesus Himself walked in. Jesus already decided to heal and paid the ultimate price for our healing and freedom with His life. Where does he get that? Because that's absolute wrong right there. It's absolutely wrong what he just said. But where does he get that? He actually quotes Isaiah 53 and 54 to justify uh, his position that, that we are all supposed to be healed or we should heal others. This should be what every Christian does um, because that's what Jesus accomplished for us in the cross. And he will quote Isaiah 54, 53, verse 5, especially the last part says, with his wounds, we are healed. Okay? I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. One of the most important principles you can ever have when you read the Bible is to let the Bible interpret itself. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Okay, Peter actually quotes Isaiah 53 here. And the way he quotes it goes 100% against the way Bill Johnson uses this text. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so what is this healing that Peter says Isaiah was talking about through the Messiah? He says this, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the healing that Peter takes from Isaiah 53 is first and foremost a spiritual healing. Our proneness to stray from God, to depart from Him, to forsake Him in our sin, that is what through the cross through Jesus, has been dealt with, has been healed. It was like a sickness, and we were just prone to go away from God. And now through the cross, through Christ, if you're a believer, you've experienced this, you've been healed, and you've been brought back to God. Physical healing is not talked about here at all. And this is the only place I could see where by his wounds you have been healed, is specifically referenced. And the way it's referenced has nothing to do with what Bill Johnson says. And there's other things I had down here to look at, but for time's sake, I won't go there. So all this to say, do we pray for healing? Yes, because we know God can heal. But we also know God 
doesn't always heal. He sometimes does and he sometimes doesn't. And so we trust him when we physically don't get what we were hoping for because his way is always best and his plan is always better. But let's move on to our next point back in Matthew chapter 8. So we've seen Jesus display his divine power. Let's look quickly here at Jesus demanding our full commitment. And like I said, these aren't unrelated because we see we have these these situations where Jesus continues to show his power and we all know people are drawn to displays of power. We see somebody do something magnificent. We want to get close to that person. We want to follow that person. We're all wired that way, one way or another. And so we get to verse 18. It says, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And then a scribe comes up to him and says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Why would he say that? Well, he's just seen Jesus do some amazing things. He healed the sick and he cast out demons. I want to be where you are. I want to go. I want to follow you, man. You, you seem like somebody I need to be around. You know, that's not necessarily bad in and of itself to see that. But he's kind of missing the point, as we're going to see. See, Jesus here responds to, you know, we, we think, man, this, is, this guy is like a prime candidate for, for salvation, prime candidate, you know, let, let's grab hold of him. And what does Jesus say? Hey, bow your head, let's pray a prayer. He says, no, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Not what we would expect in a situation like that. Someone says, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, I can't guarantee you're going to have a place to sleep. Somebody else, another of the disciples says, what, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Okay, compassion, you know, take care of your family first, right? Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Two, two thoughts on this that I want to unpack. Number one, Jesus demands our full commitment to go wherever he leads. To go wherever he leads. His response to the scribe. And that includes no matter how difficult that might be. Number two, he demands our full commitment to prioritize him above all other obligations. Above all other obligations. So what does it mean here when he says, I'm, I'm going to start in verse 22, because this has vexed me for a long time. So Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What does that phrase mean? I, I did a, a lot of research on this, and you get a, there's a lot of opinions out there. Um, is, is it talking about, well, you know, let the spiritually dead deal with the dead? Um, one commentator said, you know, there was this practice of, you know, when someone died, you'd buried them, but then you'd exhume them like a year later, like collect their bones, put them in a little ossuary, and then it'd be in a smaller place and you'd bury that. Um, means his dad's like on death's door, don't know how long he's going to have. You know, there's a lot of opinions um, on this. And then, you know, I, I praise the Lord for John MacArthur uh, in this. It was very, very helpful. Um, this is what he said, and I, I haven't found any reason to dispute this. He said, this phrase here does not mean that the man's father was already dead. The phrase, I must bury my father, was a common figure of speech meaning this. Let me wait until I receive my inheritance. 
Hmm. That shed a completely new light on what Jesus is, uh, what he's saying in response to this guy. So basically, if that's true, then this disciple's like, Lord, look, you know, I really want to follow you, but hey, let, let me wait and get all the money and all the wealth and all the real estate that I got coming my way when dad dies. I don't know when that's going to be, but just, you know, I'll follow you, but just let, 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 let him pass first and then, then I'll come. Okay, and that's why I said Jesus demands our full commitment to prioritize him above all other obligations because he is worth it and worth more than anything else we get in terms of an inheritance in this world. I mean, we really have to believe that if we're going to follow him. And so if that is the case, that this guy's basically saying, you know, look, I got an inheritance coming, Jesus. You know, let, let me deal with that first and then I'll come and follow you. Um, this guy is totally missing the point as to what's most important. And it's actually walking with Jesus. Now, here's another thing I, I want to spend a couple of moments on. You know, we talk about following Jesus. We talk about walking with Jesus. And oftentimes there's, there's an element to this that I feel like is left out. Jesus is talking to real people standing in front of him that when he starts to leave, they can either physically stay put or physically start moving their legs and walking after him. So they literally, physically, bodily would follow Jesus. Okay? Like the, the scribe would literally have nowhere to lay his head because Jesus was going all over the place. He didn't have like just one place that he always went back to. He had some good friends that he'd see, but, you know, he visited a lot of places and there was no guarantee where he's going to be sleeping. So it was literally true. You're going to what? You might not know where you're going to sleep or, you know, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Hey, look, you're neglecting your inheritance to come follow me. Like you're literally going to come after me and you might not get the inheritance that you were hoping for. And the reason why I think this is important to recognize is from where we are today, Jesus isn't physically present. He's in heaven at God's right hand as our high priest and mediator interceding for us. So what does it look like to follow Jesus for us? Because there's not a physical Jesus that we can, you know, he's going to stand up, walk down the aisle. Okay, let's follow Jesus. He's going out the door. He's going down the steps. He's getting in a big bus. We don't have that. So we need to ask, what does it look like when Jesus says, follow me? What does that actually mean? And so we, we need to think of it in this way. This is at least five key elements. And there's certainly not everything we could say on this, but I hope this is helpful. Um, this is something I've, I've tried to give some thought to over the years. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? Since again, we can't physically like follow a person walking. Five key elements to following Jesus. Number one, it involves a devotion to knowing him and responding to him as he's revealed in Scripture. First and most important thing, a devotion to knowing him and responding to him as he is revealed in Scripture. Secondly, a devotion to obeying his commands as revealed in Scripture. Obviously, all these things are as revealed in Scripture, but it's a, a devotion to obeying his commands. Number three, it involves a devotion to conforming our whole life to all that we know of Him 
and what he said. It's a devotion to conforming our whole life to all that we know of him and his commands, again, as revealed in Scripture number four. Following Jesus involves a devotion to his global church through involvement in a faithful local church. A devotion to his global church through involvement in a faithful local church. And fifthly, and I'll stop with this one, a devotion to his church's mission to multiply mature disciples in all nations. A devotion to his church's mission to multiply mature disciples in all nations. That's what it means for us to follow Jesus at the bare minimum. Like I said, there's more we could say in regard to this. And it's something that's important as well. Every single follower of Jesus will be tested on every single one of those points that we just considered. We're going to be tested on that. Sometimes one of them, sometimes all of them, sometimes a mixture. But every single one of us will be tested in our resolve to these elements of what it means to follow Jesus. And that testing can be painful. That testing can be hard. That testing can go for an extended season or longer. And God will show us all sorts of things about ourselves during those seasons and during that testing. And if we're open and we're honest, sometimes we're going to find strength where we didn't know we had it. And other times we're going to find idolatry in our hearts. We're going to find ourselves clinging to things in this world in ways we didn't even know we were doing it. Remember, the Old Testament had a category for unintentional sins. Sins people didn't even know they had or were doing. But God in His grace will reveal those in time. And when He does, it's not always fun, always pretty humbling. Sometimes it breaks us completely. But it is always for our good because He's the one who calls and He's the one who's going to help us get better at following Jesus. And remember what James said, James chapter 1. said, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know what? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Meaning, steadfastness is something you got to grow in. It's not automatic. It's not something you're already there. you got every bit of it you need. you got to grow in it. you got to grow in steadfastness. I've got to grow in steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. We grow in this. We don't have it all right now. But he goes on. He said, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So steadfastness we grow in, and also the first part, counting it all joy. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Has the Lord been patient with me in this? And I'm sure you could say the same thing. When trials and testings come, and these commitments to following Jesus, my first response has not always been, Wow, thank you, God. I'm so excited to be tested in my faith. That's not typically the first thing that has come out of my mouth. I've grown in that, and I hope you have too. But if you're not where you want to be, but you've made some progress, praise the Lord, because He's not done with you yet. He's going to keep helping you get better at counting, testing, and trials as joy and uh, growing in steadfastness. The Christian life... Following Jesus is a life lived for Jesus 
where we're continually growing in all that it means to know Him and live for Him. None of us have it figured out at the beginning. None of us do. No one. And if we lived, if we were able to live 10,000 years in this body, we would still not have it all figured out. We would still need to grow. We would still need to mature. And that's a good thing because it continually pushes us to go back to God and His grace and the cross because we don't have it in us, but He has it all for us. And so, just review a couple of things that we saw. Obviously, Jesus is displaying His power, His divine power to heal, to cast out demons. But the greatest power that we need in light of that is not first and foremost physical healing, but spiritual healing. Because remember what Peter said, we were straying, but we've been brought back. We've returned. Our biggest need is to return to God, to come to Jesus. That's our biggest need. And as, if you're here and you'd say you're still straying and you haven't come back to Jesus, this is the best time in the world to do so. The, the Bible pictures Christ uh, all, some of the old hymns we sing picture Christ with arms wide open saying, come to me. Come to me. He will not refuse anyone who comes humbly seeking His grace and His favor. But also we see the, the call to commitment here, full commitment, this demand. I mean, are we willing to lay it all on the line for Jesus? Are we willing to go to uncomfortable places to give up our comfort? I mean, that's... Clearly, what he's telling this individual, this scribe, you know, to follow me, it could mean, you know, you might not have all the creature comforts that you hoped you would have. You might not get the plan for your life that you hoped to fulfill. You might have to forsake some obligations, some things you were hoping for. But I'm going to tell you, and so many countless saints would tell you as well, it's always worth it. Nothing you give up for Jesus will you ever regret having done so in eternity. Nothing. You have no regrets. You have no regrets. No, man, I wish I'd done, or, you know, man, if I just had a little more of this, you'll have no regrets. Whatever you give up for Jesus, you will never miss in heaven or in the new creation. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask His help for all of us to respond in the way we need to to His Word. Father, it's an interesting passage in the midst of so much going on in the ministry of Jesus. And so God, I just I ask for my own self, Lord, that um, I would guard against any false doctrine or misuse of this text uh, when we understand that yes, you can heal, but that doesn't mean you always will. Lord, I pray for the, the repentance of folks like Bill Johnson and those who would believe what he teaches, that they would come to the truth and be set free from the error that they have embraced. And Lord, if there's any here who have embraced anything similar to that, I pray you would even now lead them to see it as wrong and that you would help them turn from it. God, help all of us to count the cost of what it means to follow you, to follow Christ, to be called a follower of Jesus. There's nothing, there's no better path in life. There's nothing better for us to pursue than knowing Christ. But Lord, help us be real with what that means for our lives. 
And please give grace to respond in any way that we need to right now. And we ask all this in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.